On this episode of the Fieldhouse Files, columnist Bob Kravitz joins to discuss the current shutdown of sports due to COVID-19, and we revisit one of the best playoff series in franchise history, the Eastern Conference Finals against the Bulls in 1998. How's working from home been going for you? Remarkably remote from GoToMeeting will help you succeed in today's new normal. In just three minutes or less, we'll share simple but helpful tips to keep you on track. From managing your motivation, workload, and relationships, to hosting and attending virtual events that keep you connected with your clients and colleagues. So check out Remarkably Remote on your favorite podcasting platform or head to gotomeeting.com slash tips. And welcome into another episode of The Fieldhouse Files. I'm Scott Agnes as we've officially entered month three of this NBA hiatus in the league. And players, good news it seems as they continue to ramp up discussions about a possible return, where and what that might look like. And just this week, the Pacers reopened their practice facility for players who are in town, um, though they are still very limited in what can be done because mostly um, it's players using the court working with just one coach who's wearing a mask and gloves out one basket. Um, and it'll be several more weeks at least before they possibly reunite as a team. And then I would expect, should the season resume, that teams are given at least three weeks to hold some kind of mini camp. But for now, most of the Pacers still remain thousands of miles away. Meanwhile, we're still producing a lot of great content on The Athletic. You can log on today for a free trial or get 40% off the annual price by signing up at theathletic.com slash Fieldhouse Files. It's just about $30 a year, um, less than a cup of coffee a month when you consider the, the monthly price. Um, and that's it. In the last week, I've written about what if Kawhi Leonard had been a pacer? That's fascinating to consider, right? They already had both Paul George and Danny Granger. And then after about a year into that, Granger, uh, his body essentially gave up on him, both his calves and knee issues uh, persisted. Um, I also forecasted what the Pacers' future might look like with NBA executive John Hollinger. I really enjoyed that, and I think you will too. And also, I explained the impact of Mike Storen. He was the team's first general manager, um, and he died last week at the age of 84, but spoke with both Bob Nedelecki as well as the Hall of Famer Slick Leonard about Storen and, and his impact. But I also thought it'd be fun to discuss The Last Dance because the final episodes of it are airing this weekend, and the Pacers figure to be prominently featured because they nearly ended Michael Jordan and the Bulls' quest for a sixth championship back in 1998, Eastern Conference Finals. The Pacers were in their pinstripes in year one under head coach Larry Bird, and it went down to the final game, Game 7 at the United Center. And it was a fun one. The Pacers jumped off to an early lead. The game was even midway through the fourth, and then the Bulls, specifically MJ, took over where it mattered most, had the composure and the big game experience, and then obviously went on to beat the Jazz in the NBA Finals. Over the last week, both Bob Kravitz and I have rewatched the series and really wanted to discuss because it is one of the pinnacles, perhaps the best team in NBA franchise history. So we rewatched it and then discussed here on this episode of the Fieldhouse Files. All right, as promised, joining me today on the show is our columnist, Bob Kravitz, to discuss so much going on, including uh, the absence of sports and notably the Pacers-Bulls 1998 Eastern Conference Final Series, which was fun to go back and watch it as we both did. But Kravitz, let's start about, uh, talk a little bit about what's going on right now, and that's not much, but it seems like in particular with the NBA, it's kind of slow and steady process, board and governors meeting frequently, um, but to this point... 
um, now players being involved in some of the conversations. How do you feel about all this? Well, it's going to be interesting. I mean, clearly, you know, I mean, they're talking about playing games in a bubble, you know, whether that's out in Arizona or down in Orlando or wherever it might be. You know, somebody's going to get infected. The question is, how many people are too many people uh, before you decide to shut it down? You know, I think this is the most important decision that Adam Silver is ever going to make. I think that every other league, uh, the NHL, college, will probably take its cues from Adam Silver in the NBA. I'd like to see them give it a shot, but with the understanding that if things get out of control and a bunch of people start getting infected, that it's just not worth it's not worth putting people's health on the line. What that number is, I have absolutely no idea. Yeah, and I think they have to be accepting the fact that, say, a star player, a key role player, gets infected with it. That player by has to be taken away, and they have to be accept that much like an injury, um, even though it may not be easy to come. Early on, I was thinking, Kravy, that maybe they'd consider just eliminating the back end of the teams, right, and just bring back eight um, in each conference, or even you could whittle it down to six. But it seems like if they do resume... It's going to be trying to include everyone, notably because you need all the games and you can capitalize on the TV window because the money is not just about this year. It's as much about next year as well and settling uh, what ultimately will be the salary cap, which is expected to be significantly lower than um, at first anticipated because of all this. I, I'd be curious what you think here, but I think they should, go, should have a, a three to four week training camp and go straight to the playoffs. You know, I... I to me, playing the last, what would it be, 15, 17 games really makes no sense. I, I think, you know, we've, we've had enough of uh, a sample size to know who deserves to be in the playoffs and who doesn't. And let's just do three or four weeks training camp and go straight into the playoffs. And the argument in my mind against that, right, is the fact that they want more games and because that, that should result in more money, right? And they're trying to appeal to more of the, the TV audience. And uh, can you imagine, um, let's just say random days, you just have basketball games continuously from noon till midnight, right? things like that. Now, it does bring up concerns, right? Like you mentioned, because like if you're the Cavs, you have on a basketball standpoint, zero, con- zero motivations and concerns to return. Right. No interest in doing so if you're the Hawks or heard, even a team like the Warriors. Has already come out publicly and said, uh, season's over as far as I'm concerned. Right. Yeah, and I think I think you'll see a lot of injuries on top of the possibility of guys getting infected with the coronavirus. I, I think it's dangerous. I, 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 you know, to me, you know, I want to see the Bucks. I want to see the Pacers. I want to see Miami and, and 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 whatnot. For these teams who are out of it and just playing out the string, I see absolutely no purpose in moving forward. Now, you know, there might be teams who are in the ninth spot just a game or two out, they may feel like they got the short end of the stick. But I think uh, looking big picture, it's probably best to go straight into the playoffs. And I just don't think you can, it's hard to say, it's easy to say and tough to do, but, you know, I just don't think the TV money uh, issue can be an issue at this point. Uh, I think you've just got to do what's best for your players while trying to maintain some continuity with your league. 
I know some observers are hoping that the Western Conference has a play out, play in or some sort for their last spots because you have teams like I don't know Portland and it's specifically in New Orleans with Zion that they'd love to see more games um, from him. But it does make most sense strategically, I think, just to start the playoffs. Even though I don't think right now that's what they would do. Um, they are anticipating giving guys in teams probably three week training camp or so. And as you mentioned, there there would be injuries. Uh, maybe one last thing on this front, Krabby. I'm curious how you feel yeah. uh, your reception in terms of how players feel about Adam Silver. It seems like more than any other leader in in, in sports right now is the players are seem to be in trusting of, of Adam Silver and his decision, whatever comes of it. Well, I, I think he's been a very strong commissioner from the very beginning. I think the way he handled the whole Donald Sterling situation many years ago with the Clippers, I think that put him in good stead with a lot of the players and especially the leadership. So, you know, I I think Silver has taken over for the late David Stern. And I I think the, the NBA, when it comes to social matters, is always a step and a half in front of every other league. And so I think that, you know, Everybody uh, is going to take their cues from the league. I mean, the league shut it down. What was it, March 11th, when Rudy Gobert got sick? Uh, and then everybody else, like it was like dominoes. Yeah. Everybody else decided to shut it down. And I think the same thing is going to happen here with the resumption, or the, what we assume will be the resumption of the season. Well, in the meantime, both of us have spent the week kind of reviewing some of the old games, right? Pacers, Bulls in the 1998 season, and they'll be featured this upcoming weekend on the uh, final couple episodes of The Last Dance, which I think have been really fascinating. I enjoyed talking with Nate McMillan even about those um, years, because obviously the Sonics lost to the Bulls um, during one of those years. But uh, I guess some, I'm curious some of your initial impressions of both the series and things that went on um, around it, because a couple things that jump out to me um, are, number one, those old intros. Those give me chills that you saw at the top of the broadcast. I love it. Yeah, and even better than that is you had Bob Costas setting the scene so eloquently, as he always does, and it just it felt bigger, whereas it seems like more than ever, now we focus on kind of the... In inner turmoils and the dramas and the contract extensions rather than this has one game, one important game, and this is what it means for them and what it means for the other team. I thought that was great. Yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed going through it. I watched Game 7 uh, this morning, as I think you did as well. And, you know, look, it was a, it was a home, and, home and away series. Pacers got three at home, Bulls got four, four at home. I thought the reason the Pacers, there are a couple of reasons the Pacers lost this series. One, they couldn't grab a damn defensive rebound. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in game seven, they got out rebounded. It was a 22 to three on the offensive boards by Chicago. And Chicago got second and third chances in the last four minutes that were, that were just killers, absolute killers. Free throws. Pacers were a great free throw shooting team. During the season, they were 75% through six games uh, of the series, and they stunk in Game 7. Another thing that really stood out to me was I don't understand why Larry Bird did not, why he went back to Mark Jackson over Travis Best in the final minutes of Game 7 when Travis Best was the reason they won Game 3 and 4. Okay, that's number one. Uh, and, and, you know, Mark comes in, he picks up his dribble early, 
makes a couple bad passes. He just was not, and he didn't make an impact in that series. The other thing that I would bring up is why didn't Larry play Jalen Rose more? Jalen Rose uh, was was very good every time he saw the floor. He was certainly he was a damn sight far better than uh, than Chris Mullen, who looked overmatched the entire, entire series. Yeah, and why didn't you go with a young, fresh? fearless Jalen Rose, who I thought played really well throughout the entire series. All great takeaways. Uh, one of the, see, and I, I don't think you were an indie, right? At this point. No, I got here in 2000. Yeah. And at me, I wasn't even 10 yet. So I vaguely remembered the series. Oh, you rem- God, <laughs> you remember the pen stripes is the first year for those. You remember Larry uh, taking over and you remember all the key figures I think in this group, and unfortunately, this was the awful year where they decided to shave their heads, which I still don't understand. Um, that was not a good idea, not a good look on any of them. I think about you mentioned Jalen Rose, like he has one of the best hairlines there is, and he goes bald uh, for this series. But um, one of the big points I took away was I, I didn't remember how little of an impact that Chris Mullen really had on this series. He was out there, but it seemed more than anything. Like he was going through the motions, as you mentioned a little bit. And then I thought it was also telling, especially in game seven, where Jordan kind of, much like we've seen with LeBron, kind of eased his way into the game, finished with the game high in points and assists, and then kind of dominated that fourth quarter like we talk about so often. And the guy who killed them, I mean, there are a couple of guys who killed him. Tony Kukoc, uh, early in the second half, I think it was early in the second half, Mm -hmm. scored like 11 straight points. But Steve Kerr, who I think, you would probably agree is the best guy in the NBA. I mean, just the most enjoyable guy to talk to, the most personable, everything else. He hit some three-pointers that absolutely broke their back. And and some of those were on kickouts after they got offensive rebounds. And, and, you know, when you've got a (laughs) seven-foot-four Dutchman in the middle and you got the Davis boys, boy, you'd think you'd be able to rebound, but... You know, I mean, Rodman, look, for all his madness, and Rodman missed, did not start the first two games of the series because he was acting out. Uh, he had a big impact on that series. Um, you know, they went into uh, Antonio or Dale Davis, and usually uh, Dale, and he was destroying Tony Kukoc in the low block. And then they take him out and put in Rodman. And it changed the the, the dynamics of, of the game almost immediately. It, wasn't it fascinating to see kind of this old school basketball a little bit again, where you're not very often finishing with 100 points. They're playing out of the low post, going inside to Dale or Rick Smith. It's just yeah. not at all what we're used to anymore. And then in the game seven, both teams hit six threes. And that's it. Didn't attempt a ton either, about 15 and 16 each. There was one moment, and I don't remember that what game it was. I'll have to look at my notes later when I write this story. But the Pacers had a two-on-one, and Reggie Miller pulled up and took a three. And Isaiah Thomas and Doug Collins, the two analysts on the game, both really criticized Reggie for not taking the easy two. I think he was driving. It was two-on-one with Mark Jackson, maybe. but. You know, they, they both gave him a hard time for taking that three. And I thought in today's game, every last coach would say, take the open three. I mean, the way the game is p- played 
has changed so dramatically. And it, it was just funny. Like, and like you say, everything was, everything started with that low post feed. And one thing that the Bulls did a great job of in the games that they won was they put great pressure on the passer and made it very difficult for guys to get the ball into Rick Smith's or into the Davis boys. Yeah, I thought the biggest thing, especially late in the game, was just how they handled the ball. There was the turnover. There was the Travis Best offensive foul uh, in that game seven, and that's where you saw Larry Bird turn to um, Dick Carter and go, hey, what are we doing here discussing it? And then he turns to the end of the bench and sends Mark Jackson in. Um, They had a missed shot, then a traveling, I think maybe that was on Derek McKee. And I thought that was kind of the key stretch where they kind of lost the game after working their way back at the start of the fourth quarter with 11-0 run as the Bulls couldn't hit anything. And so I felt like that was kind of a missed opportunity there. There was one moment, uh, you know, you go back in through a game and there are so many little moments, but there was one moment in the fourth quarter where you had a jump ball between Michael Jordan and Rick Smith, and Smith's tipped it right to Pippen. And the ball eventually got reversed. And I think it ended in a three-pointer by Steve Kerr. And that was a huge moment in the game. And, you know, there are, there are a million of those uh, throughout a, a, a tight basketball game that you look at and you say, if only. To me, that was the difference. It, it was how, how relentless uh, was the word that kept coming back to me, was how they didn't give up on the boards talking about the Bulls, how they would outmuscle the Pacers many times for those. And, yeah, that was a key sequence late in the fourth quarter. Um, that was a point where... By the way, it was annoying how the graphics back then, it was kind of, they would pop up the scoreboard and then take it away. You really didn't feel like you were uh, aware, at least I didn't, of kind of the situation. And at that point, yeah, they popped score, up the sure. screen crappy. Yeah, I know. I, where the, I noticed that as well. I'm like, well, what's the score again here? And right right then, I was bringing up, they, they popped up the graphic, second chance points, 26 to 1 for the Bulls. Yes. That was the difference. Yeah, that, that was totally different. That and the free throw shooting. Uh, went south. Dale Davis had a really rough, rough game at the free throw line. You know, there's there's a lot of woulda, shoulda, couldas, but bottom line is they got outmuscled in in the game that they lost in the four they lost in this series. They generally got crushed on the boards, and I I think the Bulls were probably uh, look. I don't want to say they were right for the picking, but I think that was not the best Bulls team of, of the six that won championships. I would say that was either their fifth or sixth best team. Remember the Kukoc missed a bunch of games during the year. Pippen missed a bunch of games during the year. You had to think that Michael was exhausted, A, because he played so many games in the you know postseason games in the previous number of years, and also carrying that team without Kukoc, without Pippen, and so I think I think they were there. I, I think they could have been had, but yeah. uh, you know it's that old Rudy Tom Janovich line: "Don't never underestimate the heart of a champion." And I thought that the Bulls played like champions. Uh, it was a little dirty, and uh, not dirty, but a little ugly at times. But they just muscled their way uh, to the finals where they knocked off the Utah Jazz. Yeah, that just sounds like '90s basketball. Not pretty, but physical. And just got it done. The other thing that I didn't remember was how Reggie didn't impact the game really um, to close out the series. Did his last points were with three thirty left in the third quarter, 
Um, right. Finished with 22 in the game and played 40 minutes, but as teammates were dealing with foul trouble, he struggled. And I wonder how much of that, um, I thought it was notable how he was guarding MJ most of the time, whereas yeah. Ron Harper went up against Reggie and, and allowed MJ to kind of save his, his workload there late in the season, I thought. Um, and it worked. There's, there's no question that, that Reggie, you know, aside from the ankle, you know, the fact that he had to cover Michael and expend all that energy. And then you think about his offensive game and everything is about expending energy and running off, running off screens, running off picks, <laughs> getting himself open. And they had a, they had a really hard time, A, getting, I mean, they rarely got him the ball in spots where he really liked to get the ball. And a lot of that was because they played great defense. They switched everything. And a lot of that was because they put so much pressure on on the ball handler, especially Mark Jackson. And they just couldn't get the ball to Reggie in those spots where he was uh, used to getting them. Outside of Game 7, did you have a most, most memorable moment or most memorable game um, that, that maybe you forgot about or really enjoyed rewatching? Um, you know, when, when Travis Best came in, I think it was game, well, first of all, I mean, the moment was game four when Reggie did push off of, uh, <laughs> push off of a Michael sure. Jordan. <laughs> I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask Donnie Walsh today. Did he push off or not? And I he'll probably he say, depends what kind of glasses you were wearing. Pacer glasses? No. What are you talking about? Exactly. Exactly. But you know, him hitting that shot, uh, game three, Reggie hurts his ankle and then scores, what, eight, 11 points in a row, something like that on one foot. That was pretty cool. And then Travis Best, I just thought, you know, he came in in the, in the fourth quarter of every game that they won and, and made a difference. Yes, you get tired of watching him dribble, 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 dribble. But, you know, Larry Bird tells him during a timeout, stop dribbling and get, let's get into our offense. So he stands out in the perimeter and dribbles for about an hour and a half and then takes to the hole and knocks in the biggest <laughs> bucket of the game. I think that was game three, maybe. I, I have to go through my notes. But I, I just thought Travis Best showed some cojones. I thought Jalen Rose, like I mentioned before, I, I would have played Jalen Rose a lot more than Larry did. Uh, there was a weird moment in either game three or game four where Pacers had the lead and it was clear that the Bulls were going to have to foul. And you would have thought that Larry would have put Mullen and Smiths back in the game, and he didn't. And Antonio Davis got fouled, not a great free throw shooter, and he goes up there and knocks in both. So Larry comes out smelling like a rose. But I thought that was that was a mistake that didn't burn them in the end. This was a fun <laughs> series. And, and I think when I'll be doing a fan survey coming up uh, with Pacer fans. And I'll be curious to see when they fell in love with the franchise. And I got to believe maybe it was this team or early Reggie days where those, those old Pacer fans started to really enjoy what, what this franchise was doing and so many iconic players and, and those sorts of things, I think, that really stood out to me. Well, they they had reached the Eastern Conference Finals. Excuse me if I'm, if, you know, tell me if I'm wrong here. Was it 94 and 95 or 95 and 96? They had reached the Eastern Conference Finals. So I'm sure the, the love affair really started there. And then to take the Bulls to seven, you just think 
about this franchise and what they've done as a small market franchise to reach the Eastern Conference Finals as many times as they have over the course of the last 20, 25 years. And, but, but, you know, every time they run into Michael, they run into, they run into LeBron and, you know, they finally got over the hump in 2000 and who did they run into? Shaq and Kobe. And boy, you know, I mean, this is a really noble franchise that has done a lot of great things in the last 25 years under Donnie and and Larry and, and, and now Kevin Pritchard. Um, you know, with with limited resources, but yeah, they always they always run into generational players who uh, put them out of their misery, and it's kind of a shame. Yeah, you're right. It does go um, back to even before that. I mean, this was an incredible stretch where they reached the conference finals five of seven years, and and then ended with that finals uh, season in 2000, which I hope to revisit maybe here in uh, upcoming weeks, uh, being the 20th anniversary. Um, of all of that, but uh, a couple other things I think um, with this series, one of the notable things to me is just how many successful guys have come of it, and how you know you talk about Jalen and Mark Jackson and Steve Kerr and and Scottie Pippen, all these guys are in broadcasting or in coaching, and um, it's such a memorable um, rosters I think that we saw battle. That's the other thing that stood out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I hadn't really thought about that. But you had uh, all those future broadcasters uh, out there. I mean, Steve Kerr is one of my favorites and Mark Jackson. Mark Jackson, I don't know very well, but I think he's very, very good uh, with Van Gundy and, and Mike Breen. Uh, Scotty, I haven't heard much. I know he does the jump. Right. Uh, right. And who is the other person you were uh, referencing? Uh, Jalen Rose, for one. Jaylen. Oh, Jalen is terrific. He's a superstar when it comes to media now. <laughs> my Jalen Rose story. So Jalen was uh, drafted by the Denver Nuggets. And I was in Denver. A co- I was a columnist at the time. And I, I wrote a line saying, someday Jalen Rose will be an all-star in the CBA. So he kept that, he kept that line. He kept that column in his locker for a long time. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. It, hadn't it been fun in the last dance to see how many guys are reading the newspaper whether it's on the airplane or, or those sorts of things. And I think it, again, kind of reiterates... There's no internet. Right. But it also reiterates the fact that, of course, these guys know what's being said about them, whether oh it's back then in the newspaper or now on Twitter. Absolutely. You know, and you go to a football game now, and you go in the locker room, the first thing guys are doing is looking at their phones. Yep. They're looking at their mentions. <laughs> it's insanity a little bit. That's, if that's the first thing you're wondering about or looking into after a win or a loss. Right. They, they're they human beings. I didn't read the story, but somebody told me you wrote X, Y, and Z. Classic. Bull, bull. You read it yourself. And if you didn't read it yourself, then we're not having this conversation. Yeah. And so many times, you know, somebody's making sure they read it, whether it's positively or negatively about them and such. Um, any any lasting yeah. thoughts uh, yeah. that you want to share? I thought, it, I will say this, I thought it was notable kind of the the announcing crew, you talk about Isaiah Thomas, who MJ hated. You talk about Doug Collins, his former coach, and Ahmad Rashad, MJ's best friend on the sideline. You know what, though? Ahmad Rashad, you know, we can take issue with his relationship with Michael and being kind of the inside guy and all that stuff. But you know what? He was good. I, I mean, thought he was good. I thought he gave great information. 
I thought he was as good a sideline reporter as as you could be. I don't have great, you know, I don't have high thoughts of, you know, uh, sideline reporters. I don't know how necessarily necessary they really are. But I thought Ahmad Rashad was very good. It's just his relationship with Michael, I think, colored everything. Yeah, and we've learned more about that as time went on. I mean, he was kind of known as doing those sidelines and then, of course, launching inside stuff, um, which was a, a regular watch of mine growing up. But it was, it was just funny to see all those guys, how close entwined they were related. And I was just thinking back if they had kind of those pre, pre-game meetings, right, with like MJ, was Isaiah Thomas in there? And with how much MJ has bashed Isaiah in The Last Dance and elsewhere, I thought that that's an interesting visual I wish I would, would have known about. It was funny. At one point, they had an ad about how Bob Costas and Isaiah had done a uh, a special on the '92 Dream Team, and I can I can only imagine how much fun that must have been for Isaiah to do that. Mm, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> that's one of those stories that's lived on, especially now uh, because of the documentary. Got second life now. It, it absolutely has, and. Um. Yeah, it's been really fun to watch, and I think ESPN wisely has maximized uh, getting it to uh, television right now. When we all want something to watch, and they're getting you know six million viewers and such. But no, this was this was fun. I we look forward to your column. I've been rewatching the game, game seven, notably myself, and it brings up brings back interesting memories. Um, for sure, some good, some bad. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, you know, someday, someday they'll win a championship, right? I don't know. Yeah, it's especially right now when when it's all about having three superstars and the Pacers don't even have one just yet. They're going to have to eventually if they do win, it's going to have to be like the the Pistons, right? Where it's a collection of fringe all stars. But look at the Milwaukee Bucks. They only have one superstar and they're this close to getting to a championship. So I think it's possible. But yes, I would agree. I think if the Pacers are going to win a championship, it's going to have to be the Detroit Pistons model. There absolutely is no question. Gravy, I enjoyed the discussion, but most of all, it's meaningless when it comes down to, to life. And we're glad you're doing well after quadruple bypass surgery, which is scary. But we're glad to still uh, be able to talk some shop with you uh, in the meantime. And glad you were, uh, you're feeling better and kind of slowly getting back into things. Absolutely. I had the combo platter. Jeez, something you wish upon nobody, so... Man, I'm glad you're feeling better. And we look forward to your piece. All right. Sounds good.